Welcome to the Melinda Eitzen Show. I'm Melinda. Today we're going to talk about education law. What is it? Why do people need it? And I am so fortunate to have George Shake, one of my law partners here who does education law, to talk to us about it. Welcome, George. Hi, Melinda. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Me too. So you're a lawyer and you do education law, but you have a background that caused you to have an interest in it. What Cer was that? Certainly. I um, practiced school psychology in public schools for 15 years. And um, the needs of students has something that's always been very important to me. And um, that was my first career. So and you saw it from that side. I did. I was right there in the trenches with the <laughs> teachers and parents and students and uh, saw the challenges and uh, unfortunately saw the need for a lawyer for a lot of the parents and students too. So what does it mean, education law? Most people don't even know there is such a thing. I often find myself as the first education lawyer that people meet. And so I am used to that question. It does have a few very distinct areas. So the area I practice is representing parents and students. But there are um, equally vibrant um, areas uh, regarding employment. And so you have employ employment lawyers on the school side or the teacher side. Uh, I don't practice that kind of law. And lastly, um, if you think of a, a large public school district as a small city, the, the school district has general counsel because they um, negotiate contracts with vendors, they have um, injuries that occur, there are tax issues, and so there's a, a huge legal business in representing school districts and other entities, and I don't do any of that. <laughs> so what is it you do do? So... Um, I represent um, parents of students or adult students in a variety of situations. I'll give you as many examples as I could think of. <laughs> okay. And so we have um, constitutional issues like freedom of speech issues that come up in schools. We have bullying that's been certainly um, receiving a lot of attention over the last several years. Yes. We have children that may have disabilities, but the school hasn't taken the necessary steps to identify them. There are children with disabilities that aren't receiving the right program or services. Um, discipline comes up a lot at school, so parents call me if their child's being disciplined, especially if they have concerns about the discipline. Perhaps there's a due process issue. We have issues with truancy com coming up. Um, we have issues about attendance zones. Um, students receiving the wrong grade, maybe the wrong GPA. That could determine who's valedictorian at graduation and who gets what kind of scholarship to oh, university. Yes. And so the number of issues you could imagine coming up with students are the number of issues that I deal with. Okay, I love, I'm gonna tell you a story that I tell people about your practice because it's my favorite story and it's short. <laughs> there was this dog and this dog was very special and had been trained to take care of this child who was nonverbal and autistic and she would hit herself and this dog was trained to get between her arm and herself and help her not self-harm and you can imagine the thousands and thousands of dollars somebody paid to train this dog so the dog goes to school with the child and the school says you can't bring that dog here and they, the parents called you and hired you and you made one phone call to the school and they were like, yes, the dog can come now. <laughs> so sometimes it's that simple that you literally can make a phone call and get the legal 
department at the school to tell the individual school, hey, you got to let the dog come help this child. That's exactly right. And that's a great example, Melinda, because there were no reasons, no legal reasons whatsoever to deny this person with a disability their necessary accommodation. And so we have long-standing anti-discrimination laws in this country, and they had not consulted with their attorney. And when I did that, uh, we were able to clear, clear up the issue immediately. And my hope is, if a parent is having trouble with the school, that I can get it resolved that quickly, and I often do. The parents have to bring their children back to these schools. And so it's not about beating up the school or a teacher or creating more of a riff. It's really about just getting a problem solved and hopefully getting the school and the parent back on the same page and taking care of a child. Now, some kids who have a special need, they have an ARD meeting. Am I saying that right? You are. And I know that you go to the ARD meeting sometimes. I certainly do. In my previous occupation, I went to thousands of ARD meetings. <laughs> and now after 10 years of practice, uh, not as many, but certainly <laughs> several hundred more. And so these meetings are required by federal law at least once a year. And the folks that attend this meeting would make absolute sense to you if you had to decide yourself. It's a school administrator, a regular education teacher, a special education teacher, the parents, and anybody else involved in the case. So most attorneys and even lay people know that there are some children that receive, for example, speech, speech services at school. That's a very common uh, service, and that person would be invited to that kind of meeting as well. I see. So why would somebody bring a lawyer to an ARD meeting? Unfortunately, this ARD committee um, has a tremendous influence over the type of education a child receives from year to year. And so if a parent is dissatisfied with their child's progress, with the um, services the child's receiving, the classroom setting, anything at all, it's this ARD committee that's going to make the decision. And it's not a voting committee, the district makes the decision in the end. So yes, the parent is um, encouraged to voice their opinion, but the school has the veto. And if you're a parent with a child with special needs and you're dissatisfied and you realize the school does not have to follow your request as a parent, you might become pretty dissatisfied with how your child's progressing. And if you're lucky, you can find someone to educate you and maybe even come and be helpful in your meeting, which I'm happy to do. So the push-pull is, are they, there's an accommodation issue. The child needs some type of accommodation. And the parent is saying, you're not accommodating. And the school is saying, yes, we are. <laughs> and that's when sometimes they get you involved to s try to get the school to see it from the parent's perspective. That's exactly right. And typically for the, for the better of the situation, when I go to the ARD meeting, the school's attorney comes to the ARD meeting. And so now the school has good counsel to understand the regulations and laws and, and perhaps pay a little bit more attention to what service they're denying a parent or um, how they're viewing a student. Okay, that's good. Okay, you talked about um, bullying. What would a lawyer have to do with a bullying situation? Our hopes would be nothing, right? We always hope our schools are doing their best at all times, but schools are uh, made up of humans. And so you have very busy administrators and teachers who don't read the entire board policy and student code of conduct every year. And so when an adult at a school makes a snap decision about a bullying complaint, it may not be in compliance with the law or even the school's own regulations. For example, 
if someone reports bullying, a formal investigation has to take place. And there are schools that will argue perhaps that a certain form wasn't used to report the bullying or the bullying report went to the wrong person. And none of those are acceptable reasons to fail to investigate bullying. There are some also support services that could be put in place for the victim while the investigation is going on. So if an administrator receives a legitimate complaint of bullying, why would we have these the, the alleged bully and victim in the same schedule all day, every day, while the investigation is going on? And so looking at perhaps some changing of schedules, even changing of seats in the classroom, maybe a little bit more supervision during unsupervised times like passing periods or lunch will protect the victim as the administrators do a proper investigation. And so when they don't do a proper investigation, parents call me, I contact the school's attorney, we look at the paperwork together and make sure it gets handled properly. A lot of this sounds like common sense. Like you're there to say, hey, everybody, let's use some common sense and not have the bully next to the child accusing them of bullying all day. I couldn't say it better. And and my clients begin to question their own common sense. When they hear no from multiple administrators, they believe the situation must be the opposite of what you'd expect. And so they receive, they're so relieved when they talk to someone who knows the regulations and even points it out to them. And they know their, their intuition was right. Something was wrong. It needs to be corrected. And so I think part of my job is exactly as you're saying that to use common sense, but not insult the people that I'm trying to work with and get them to understand their duties and take care of the child and do the right thing. Yes. So you have to, they're going to have an ongoing relationship. That's so you have exactly. to be sensitive to that, not just go hit them with a hammer and that's say, you stupid head. That's exactly right. Many times a school will experience a little bit of relief when they hear, I'm the attorney that the parent hired. They know I used to work in schools. I'm very professional and I know the law. So I'm not going to go in and harass people. We're just going to get the, the problem solved. Yes. You're like the voice of reason. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I remember another story where a child was a future farmers of America. So FFA had raised up this cow and wanted, you know, was going to go take the cow to the competition and something had gone wrong. I don't know if it was a grade or bad behavior in the school, but the school wasn't going to allow the cow to go to the cow competition that this poor child had raised up all this time. And so I think the parents hired you to try to get the cow in the competition. We had to go to court over this beer guzzling bovine. <laughs> A common strategy to prep these animals, especially cows, if they are underweight or there are issues with their coat of hair, is a daily beer. And this is known throughout FFA. And unfortunately, this cowboy uh, student who took great care of his animals knew this and had brought the alcohol to the school barn to feed his cow. And so there was a legitimate concern of alcohol, but a very, a, a very uh, illegitimate application to this unusual situation. Yes. Yeah, so sometimes, like in the law, bad facts make strange <laughs> results. That was a strange fact pattern that ended up in an unfair restriction. It's true. The parents and I worked very closely together, and we tried our best. And since then, they've moved on and are doing great, but that poor cow never got to show. <laughs> 
Well, sometimes the rules are the rules, right? That's certainly right. Do you help people um, at all levels of their schooling, whether it's a grade school student, high school, college, or are there only certain levels that you handle? We work with all level students. And so for public schools, children with disabilities are entitled to service as early as three years old. Wow. And so they have um, preschool programs for children with disabilities from the ages of three to five. I'm very familiar with those programs and represent parents in that group. A more typical school age child, we'd be thinking about grades kindergarten through 12th grade. But again, with special needs children, they might be entitled to public school until they're 21 or 22 years old. Oh, that's interesting. And separate from public school, we have private school children of the same age. And then we represent university students, medical students, professional students um, of all walks of life, nursing school, um, technical colleges, medical school, law school. Um, things come up in schools and there just um, are very few attorneys that have the educational background to help them. So we are very honored that they come to us and we um, work with their uh, university administrations and most often just get it taken care of, the same we would with all of our cases, just through some collaboration between uh, myself and the school's attorney, and perhaps, you know, some of the, the school staff just need to hear what their own rules are sometimes. <laughs> well, who wants to read the boring rules all day, right? <laughs> I love it, Melinda. I know, I know that makes me unusual, but I really do. I re that's how my passion started, working with students. And ever, if you ever hear um, someone tell a parent, no, we can't help your student that way, um, it's pretty motivating to go find out what authority people rely on and how to help that parent or that family or a student anyway. Yeah, it's wonderful. So at the college level, what is the common issue? It's, it's usually just one of a handful of issues. Very often there's a grade issue. And so either there's an accusation against our client of cheating. Oh, don't be a cheater. Don't cheat. Or a lot of the professional and technical schools require uh, have requirements beyond classrooms. So there's um, internship hours and residency hours and projects. And so there are times that there's a disagreement between our student and the school administrators whether or not those criteria were met. Oh, I see. So they're saying, I've done everything. I'd like my diploma now. And the school's saying, no, you haven't done everything. That could really impact your life. We have students that are working full-time in a similar occupation, married with children and bills and responsibilities, and have put a tremendous amount of resources into um, this degree, and months before graduation are being told they failed to meet criteria. Sometimes accurately, but sometimes not. Ooh, that would be important to sort out. That'd be worthy of a little uh, lawyer involvement. <laughs> it, it usually works out very well. So are there any issues surrounding extracurricular activities in the schools? Like I didn't get on the tennis team or they're, the coach is overrunning the tennis team or th things like that. Those issues are very, very common. And it's through every extracurricular activity you've ever heard of. <laughs> and so um, this is typically in the, the um, high school range of students. And it involves... Um, things related to discipline accusations, uh, to tryouts that weren't handled according to the rules that were published, mm. um, or a child having some disabilities 
and the um, extracurricular program not accommodating for those disabilities, which is discriminatory under the federal law. And so we educate a lot of athletic programs about anti-discrimination laws when applying um, those accommodations to the tryout procedures and training procedures and things of that nature. That's great. Uh, sometimes people want to go to a different school than the school district they're zoned for. <laughs> and sometimes they might fib a little bit. <laughs> in order to make that happen. Does that ever come up in your practice? You know it does, <laughs> and a lot of our, our viewers will too. And so usually the motive is pretty pure. So we have uh, tenant zones that change from year to year, and, and good families um, will research school districts and choose a, a house to buy based on an attendance zone. Mm. And the next year, that attendance zone moves one block over, and now they have been moved to a new school district against their will. And so luckily, um, many school districts do have cooperative agreements between each other and allow some families on the edge of attendance zones to attend the neighboring school district. Some school districts allow parents to pay to have their child go to a school district they're not oh, zoned for. didn't know that. Occasionally, uh, a family can be uh, meet an exception, even though they're technically not in a zone, they, they might be accepted in. And unfortunately, um, what families often do before they reach out to me is they use someone else's address, and then their school has dismissed their child from their district, and now we have the parent and the school at odds. And it's difficult to bridge that gap, but that's what I try to do when those, when those folks call me. So they'd be better off calling you before they do the fibbing part. <laughs> this is one of those situations where it's the adage of uh, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission is not true. Mm -hmm. The school districts are much more willing to work with a family if they're upfront and get and, and reach out early enough where maybe even um, the zoning plan hasn't been um, per made permanent yet where a small change could be made in a timely way. You mentioned earlier that one area that you deal with is freedom of speech. And freedom of speech, you know, it's so important, but that probably means you're dealing with people whose speech is offensive, but not to the level that it can be banned by the school. Is that what the fight is about? That's frequently the fight. There are other issues that people might not think of as freedom of speech issues. So, for example, hairstyles come up surprisingly frequently. And so that's been going on since the 60s. Right. And it's a great example of a very simple. Um, protests were also big in the 60s, but they came back. You know, as um, the, the world has gotten smaller, our students are much more educated about crises that are happening all over the country and all over the world. Mm -hmm. And so protest is definitely a, an area that we want to protect. Um, but you're right, um, the most frequent call I get is a student um, has used some pretty offensive speech and the school wants to discipline the student, usually by removing them from school, which is a really serious consequence. And so um, what it comes down to is where is, was the student physically located when the speech or communication was made? And if it wasn't on school property, was the student using a school electronic device like a uh, iPad that the school issued, or were they on a, a school issued communication system like email? 
And so what I'm finding is the school administrators often forget to ask those questions. And when they see a printout from an upset mother about something your child wrote um, that's con very concerning, um, the investigation doesn't go the way it should. They're not asking, was the student on school property? Was it during school hours? And so at home, if a child is on their own devices and it's, um, they're not using a school account, um, the school has very, very little uh, control over that child's free speech. And I have to remind them of that quite often. And it's not that we want the children to be offensive. I mean, hopefully their parent is saying, stop being offensive. But that's very different than kicking them out of school. That's the problem is that we, you know, my clients are so good about recognizing this child exercised horrible judgment. You wouldn't believe the hot water they're in at home. And we're not surprised at all that the school is talking to us about some discipline. Mm -hmm. But to look at a child who has excellent grades, no discipline record at school, is a very active contributing member of the student body. And the consequence could be something like going to jail school or going to an alternative school for four months where they can't take honors courses and they can't take most of the electives. And, and their, their whole future changes based on poor judgment they exercised out in the community. And so the community, our, our cities have ways to deal with misbehavior and communication and families and parents do. And the, there's often no role, there's no role for the school in most of that. But you're right, the parents are embarrassed and they learn a lot about what platforms their child's on, what technology is being used. Maybe, they're, maybe their child's been upset about something and this is the way it came out and they're able to get the child some support and attention through counseling. Yes, yes. What about does the whole concern about more than bullying, but like these school shootings and all that, does that come into your realm at all? The interesting um, way it has really come up um, quite a bit since COVID. And what happened was um, when families um, were um, forced to have their children educated at, in their homes through virtual education, for example, many families experienced a lot of relief that they didn't realize they needed. So we had many students who were either being bullied or were felt like they were on unsafe campuses. And by being home and watching a child flourish um, through the virtual education, many parents realized that they had no intention of having their children return back to their home campus because of so many safety issues. And then at a certain point, most school districts withdrew those virtual systems. They shut those down. And we have parents who don't want their children to go in person anymore, but want the school to support their children at home during virtual learning because of safety issues. COVID and health, yes, but also because of bullying, because of sexual harassment, because there's no metal detectors in most schools. And um, with the rash of mass shootings this year, it's really in the forefront of parents' minds, will my children be safe today? Oh, yeah. I used to think when I was younger that homeschooling seemed like a weird choice to me. I was like, those are kind of weirdos, right? I mean, not to be critical, which I was, obviously. And then, boy, when COVID came, I thought, whoo, those homeschoolers were sure smart. <laughs> They already know what's going on. They didn't have to make the big transition that everybody else did. And now with all the safety concerns, you know, you can see it as a, I mean, 
they have to make an effort to get their kids socialized, I think. But you can certainly see the attraction, at least I can, more than I ever did before. And in Texas, we have very liberal homeschooling rules, true? We absolutely do. And so for a, a myriad of reasons, parents do choose to homeschool their children. And today, more than ever, there are a mass of resources available to parents at no cost. So the Texas Education Agency, in charge of education planning for our entire state, has shared resources with parents for years in support of, of homeschooling and standardized testing and getting credited um, classes as high school students and a diploma that's so critical. And so, yes, there's all kinds of homeschool programs for different types of families, and that's fine. But I recommend people really make sure that their program is accredited by the state. And that's not a difficult task. Like you said, um, Texas is very generous. But to have that accreditation in the program you're using with your child guarantees that their credits will be recognized by other schools and universities and will also gra um, guarantee a graduation and diploma, which is critical. Yes. And so in 2023, in, in, in this year and, and um, year recent years. There are so many resources available online now. This is a very manageable option for parents. Yeah, it's nice to have that option, right? It would not have worked for me. <laughs> I'm very thankful for the public schools that schooled up my children. Um, but I think it's nice that people have different options. In Texas, we recognize parental rights as a very strong right. And these options are critical to parents feeling like they've made their cho the choice that's best for their child. So I know, George, because you're my partner, that you do education law, as we've been talking about, but you also practice family law, meaning you represent people in divorces and things like that. Um, and I think you have a preference for the family law cases that maybe have a special needs component or an education component. Talk a little bit about that. Certainly. Um, I've been practicing um, family law as long as I've been practicing educational law. And um, I absolutely am attracted to families that touch upon a member of the family having um, uh, disabilities or conditions that need to be considered um, and or educational issues with children. And I would say because um, our country has become much more enlightened about um, mental health issues and um, alcoholism and um, special needs issues. And the stigma is um, uh, reduced greatly over just the last 10 years. And so folks are more, more comfortable bringing it up. And so I represent a number of adults where one of the adults has a disability. And so we're talking about homes that have been modified to match a disability. We're talking about very unique financial structures because people are receiving government benefits. Um, and, and of course, when parents are looking for divorce attorneys when they have a special needs child, they're very concerned about using their resources wisely and planning appropriately for a child with significant disabilities. And so um, those cases are uh, especially rewarding for me because so often in a family law case, um, there's really no one who understands what the parents are addressing and what their future needs are gonna be for their child. And so that is an area that um, I enjoy very much. George, it's been such a pleasure having you here. If someone wanted to find you, how do they find you? Well, let me thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, I love talking about these families with you. And um, I, we're easy, easy to find on the internet, Duffy and Eitzen. Um, we'll put our, our 
uh, website on. It's uh, d-elaw. Uh, that's the same extension for my email, george at d-elaw.com. And we'll put our phone number and contact information on the bottom for everybody. If you have a case or you just want to ask me a question, don't hesitate to reach out. Happy to help. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now our tip for the day. The choice of school can be one of the biggest decisions in your family's life. And if you have a custody case where you're fighting over where's the child gonna spend more of the time, to have the right to have your house designated as the house where we're gonna pick the school is a really big deal because the child's whole life is gonna end up surrounding that school area and your home because not only is it gonna be the school, but the friends and now the t-ball and the basketball and the Boy Scouts and everything that your child does is gonna be in that community. So if your goal in your case is to have more time with your child, then I would really fight for the right to have the school designated by your address. And that's the tip for the day.